This week, Aegean Marine Petroleum files for Chapter 11. Weatherford bondholders hold organizational call. Gastar Equity Committee denied. More and all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distress, debt, and bankruptcies. I'm Alex Brosman, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, sits down with Covenant Analyst Peter Washkowitz to talk about trends in bond indentures with a focus on recent deals, Refinitiv, and Envision Healthcare. It's Sunday, November 11th. Aegean Marine Petroleum filed for Chapter 11 on Tuesday morning, intending to pursue a Section 363 sale of all assets. The debtors said they are seeking to stabilize business operations, address near-term debt maturities, and to facilitate a value-maximizing restructuring transaction. Strategic partner Mercuria Energy Group Limited has agreed to serve as a stocking horse purchaser and to provide $532 million in dip financing. Although the case has been assigned to Judge Michael Wiles, Judge Stuart Bernstein oversaw the first day hearing. The unusual first day hearing on Wednesday focused mostly on the Mercuria proposal. In the continuation of the hearing on Thursday, Adam Paul from Kirkland and Ellis, counsel to the Aegean debtors, announced that the case parties have been, quote, able to reach an agreement in principle with respect to the form of the interim dip order, resolving the objection filed by the ad hoc group of convertible note holders. On Friday, the Aegean debtors filed a revised form of the, of the interim dip order reflecting the resolution with the ad hoc group, and Judge Bernstein has now approved the interim dip financing. Significantly, the interim dip order no longer authorizes the dip lenders to credit bid as set forth in the initial version of the proposed order. The order has also removed provisions that would have immediately rolled up 50% of pre-petition ABL obligations held solely by Mercuria upon entry of the interim order. Debtors' counsel indicated that they will seek interim relief on a number of other motions before Judge Michael Wiles at a, quote, one-and-a-half-day hearing. Reorg learns that the organizational call for Weatherford bondholders following the company's poorly received third-quarter earnings was hosted by Q Investments. On the call, investors were informed that Q had retained Millbank and PJT as advisors, and those interested were requested to share their holdings with the advisors for the purpose of determining the possible size and composition of a group. Q, which is based in Fort Worth, Texas, and described itself in a June 2nd letter to Weatherford's board as a, quote, significant holder of the company's debt, said in the letter that market prices signal that actions taken by Weatherford to, quote, solve its problems, including a plan for a $1 billion improvement in operating results, are, quote, woefully inadequate. Last week, Weatherford said on its third quarter earnings call that fourth quarter EBITDA would decline sequentially by mid-single digits on a percentage basis and that revenue would be roughly flat with third quarter levels. The company also delayed its target to achieve free cash flow break-even to 2019 from its original target of this year. On Thursday, Judge Marvin Isker denied the appointment of an official equity committee in the Gastar Chapter 11 cases after a two-day hearing on an emergency basis. The motion had been filed last week by minority shareholders, Firtree and York Capital, as well as by an ad hoc committee of holders of Gastar's Series A and Series B preferred stock. Judge Isker said that despite it being a, quote, hard hearing, in the end, his decision was not a close call. 
Judge Isker commented that maybe it was a mistake to hold the hearing on an emergency basis, but said that he can only rule based on evidence in front of him. During the first day of the hearing on Wednesday, Judge Isker rejected the expert testimony of Todd Snyder of TRS Advisors, which was being put forward by York and Furtree. Judge Isker ultimately ruled that Snyder's testimony, which was prepared for no fee, was intended to provide a future opportunity for engagement by a committee if one is appointed, and this made him improperly interested under Daubert case law. Judge Isker was clear that Snyder was forthright in his testimony, and he would have been admitted as an expert but for the fee issue. Judge Isker further clarified that there is, quote, no evidence at all that the crossing advisor retentions were unethical undisclosed, or not fully agreed to by the sophisticated parties involved. However, the judge ruled that the overlapping representations could have impacted the market perceptions of the gas star sale process, and this could have tainted the bidding. On the island of Puerto Rico, on Monday, the official committee of unsecured creditors in the Title III cases, in its role as Commonwealth agent, COFINA agent Bettina White, and the PROMISA Oversight Board filed a stipulation resolving the committee's challenge to the Oversight Board's authority to proceed with the COFINA settlement. Under the stipulation, the Commonwealth agent will not object to the approval of the settlement motion, approval of the COFINA disclosure statement, or the confirmation of the COFINA plan, subject to certain reservations of rights regarding any material adverse changes to fiscal plan projections or the settlement, which the Board indicated it does not foresee. In a related move on Thursday, lawmakers approved the COFINA restructuring legislation, House Bill 1837, which was expected to be enacted into law by Governor Ricardo Rossello. Also on Thursday, Davis Polk confirmed through a press release the formation of a new ad hoc group holding, in the aggregate, approximately $3.3 billion of bonds issued or guaranteed by the Commonwealth. The group formed, quote, for the purposes of engaging in the negotiation of a comprehensive restructuring of the Commonwealth's debts, has retained Davis Polk as counsel and Ducera Partners as financial advisor. Group members include Aurelius Capital Management, Autonomy Capital, Brigade Capital Management, Canyon Capital Advisors, Davidson Kempner Capital Management, Monarch Alternative Capital, OZ Management, and Benistas Del Patio Incorporated which advocates on behalf of island-based bondholders with $1 billion of debt issued or guaranteed by the Commonwealth. Kicking off a busy week in the courts, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit heard oral argument on Monday in San Juan, ultimately reserving decision on separate appeals by the ad hoc group of GO bondholders and by bond insurers Assured Guarantee, National Public Financial Guarantee, and Financial Guarantee Insurance Company. The next day, also in San Juan, Judge Laura Taylor Swain approved the proposed qualifying modification for the Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico, the first restructuring deal negotiated under Title VI of PROMISA. Before ruling, the court had heard and approved the settlement announced during the hearing between GDB, FF, and Seaman Transportation's partnership Puerto Rico SE, resolving the last remaining objection to the deal. During Wednesday's Title III omnibus hearing, the PROMISA Oversight Board provided Judge Swain with an update on the anticipated timetable for the proposal of additional plans of adjustment. Martin Bienenstock of Proskauer Rose, counsel for the Oversight Board, said that a meeting took place Wednesday in New York with the Oversight Board, the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders that is party to the RSA, and one of the monolines that filed the receiver motion to work toward a definite agreement. While timing is difficult to predict, he said the board and PREPA hope to present to the court a definitive agreement within a matter of months.
Separately, Wednesday, sources familiar with the matter said the PROMISA Oversight Board has successfully pushed back a resumption of formal Title III mediation until January. The move came despite reports of progress being made during informal talks between creditor groups and Commonwealth officials, with advisors to the Oversight Board and the Commonwealth also taking part in the discussions. Other top-read stories of the week were 1. Hexion 1L notes hear FA pitches as company faces more than $2 billion in 2020 maturities. 2. Sears UCC seeks Rule 2004 discovery of ESL, Lambert, others convinced estate claims exist. 3. In follow-up call, McDermott highlights competing goals of deleveraging, bolstering liquidity ahead of an upcycle. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Alex, and welcome to the show. And greetings, everyone, and welcome back. This week is not as burdened with the earnings and events that characterized the previous two, the aftershocks of which are still being felt by the likes of McDermott, Weatherford, and a host of others. It's a good time to lean back and try to make sense of what we've seen the past month, given the various cross-currents of higher rates, lower oil, various rumblings from all the usual sources. Nevertheless, there's a number of things to keep us all alert before we enter the Thanksgiving swoon. Starting with Monday, November 12th, it's outside date for the PREPA RSA in Puerto Rico, and also we have third quarter earnings from Tidewater. Tuesday, November 13th, Hexion reports its third quarter, and we have a DS hearing in Nine West and a bid procedures hearing in Westmoreland Coal. Wednesday, November 14th, Q3 earnings from Concordia, and for Aegean Marine, a hearing on those first day motions that were not approved in the week gone by. That's definitely going to be an interesting case. Thursday, November 15th, earnings from JCPenney. Coupon payments are due from Hexion LBI Media. And we also have the second day hearing in Westmoreland, a DS hearing for American Tire, and if that's not enough, a bid procedures hearing for Sears Holding. And Friday, November 16th, a DS and plan confirmation hearing for Mattress Firm. And that would seem to be it. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Credit Research Director Mark Fisher and Covenant Analyst Peter Washkowitz discussed trends in bond indentures with a focus on recent deals, Refinitiv, and Envision Healthcare. So I'm here today with Peter Washkowitz, a Covenant Analyst here at Reorg. And Peter is also on the, um, the, the team that's reviewing new bond issuances. Uh, he heads up that effort here at Reorg. And he's going to talk to us today about some recent trends that he's been seeing in the market, a couple of names in particular. Uh, so uh, Peter, you know, thank you for stopping by. And uh, the deals I want to talk to you about, uh, they've come to market, ones that um, you know, we've heard a lot about, actually. Um, First one, Blackstone's $20 billion acquisition of a majority stake in Thomson Reuters Financial and Risk Unit, uh, which has been renamed Refinitiv. And the other one, KKR's $10 billion acquisition of Envision Healthcare Corporation, a provider of physician-led services and post-acute care and ambulatory surgery services. Uh, yeah, uh, those were definitely the big deals of the year so far. Um, in the Refinitiv deal, the financing included uh, an $8 billion term loan, $750 million revolver, $3 billion in first lien notes, uh, and $2.5 billion of unsecured notes. In Envision, the financing included a $5 billion term loan, $550 million revolver, uh, $1.2 billion of unsecured notes, and $525 million of notes issued in a private placement. 
Additionally, these deals were of note because of their loose covenants. Um, yes, that, that's that's exactly right, and that's what I wanted to discuss uh, today. This uh, concept of loose covenants. Um, so when I hear that, you know, I think of things like less restrictions on maintenance covenants, uh, you know, which limit bondholders' ability to provide checks on the companies or financial sour, and uh, you know, little restrictions on investments uh, that companies um, can make to transfer assets. Uh, which, which ultimately, which, which a lot of times results in assets being transferred away from from bondholders. So you know, in my mind, you know, under some of the worst case scenarios, when I think of loose covenants, my mind in, initially jumps to issuers' ability to add on additional debt and pay sponsors huge dividends. Uh, yeah, you're you're definitely not wrong, Mark. Um, just in terms of the maintenance covenants. Um, Ordinarily, those would would pop up in the in the bank debt. So, um, you know, it'd be very notice, notable and very favorable to creditors if they had been in the bonds. But um, of course, they weren't. Um, but the majority of calls I have had with subscribers, both on uh, Refinitiv and Envision, and also just generally on other names that we cover, um, usually center around debt and dividend capacity. Um, those were definitely the focus in Refinitiv and Envision. Um, but you know, I, one thing is that I mean, permitting tons of additional debt and dividends is not, not is not something new, uh, particularly in these large cap sponsor financing. So you th- you think that there are other important issues we should be looking at? Well, I mean, not not more important per se. Obviously, debt and dividends are are, are you know of importance. I just think that there are a bunch of other issues that haven't garnered as much focus. Uh, but before we just uh, dive in too much, let me just uh, qualify this whole discussion. Um, you know, all the articles that have been published on these deals and a lot of the discussion I've had have revolved around the terms in the bonds. Uh, this isn't surprising, given that the bank debt is much more closely guarded. And, um, you know, unless you're involved in the deal, it's it's pretty difficult to get a copy of the bank debt. Um, so, I mean, that being said, the loosened covenants in bonds is not surprising. Historically, the terms in bonds are have always been a lot more, uh, a lot, a lot more flexible than the terms in the bank debt. So it's it's more about a degree of looseness rather than the looseness itself. Um, but I mean, what's notable is that, you know, let's just say you have bonds that had no restrictions, just let the issuers do whatever they wanted. The companies still have to comply with, uh, you know, the covenants and the terms and restrictions in the bank debt. Um, I'm sure that the terms, that the bank debt for Refinitiv and Envision provided tons of flexibility, but they're also gonna provide a lot more limitations. So. Any discussion, and you know the discussion we're about to have, on the looseness of the covenants in these deals should kind of be taken with a grain of salt, given that the bank debt is is likely going to be the limiting factor in 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 any discussion. Yeah, and but to confirm, um, we're we're just right now going to talk about uh, the bonds here and and not the the bank debt. Yeah, I mean, I would love to be talking about the bank debt as well, uh, but we haven't we haven't seen a copy of that. So yes, um, we're just going to be focusing on the bonds. Uh, let me just uh, quickly recap the debt and dividends um, in, in, in these in these deals. Um, in Refinitiv, uh, the bonds, and including the first lien bonds, they permit you know billions of dollars of additional secured debt. Um, and and interestingly, um, Refinitiv can also use its substantial uh, RP capacity to incur additional debt. Of course, the capacity for RPs would go down, but. Um, but it, it, it's not it's not common to kind of give debt capacity based on your RP capacity. Um, in addition, the dividend capacity is also substantial, um, including a, a builder basket um, that's based on 50% of consolidated net income, plus the greater of a billion dollars and 40 uh, 40% of EBITDA, 
and a basket based on market capitalization following an IPO. Um, in terms of the builder basket, there's no leverage or interest coverage test required to access the basket, which it, it, that is pretty aggressive. Um, I've always taken the view that permitting, I've, I've also always kind of taken the view that permitting RPs based on market cap could also be somewhat aggressive, given that uh, market cap sometimes doesn't really reflect the underlying financials of a company. I mean, you know, look at a Tesla, for example. Um, in Envision, uh, I remember when the OM uh, for the notes was first distributed, uh, all outstanding debt under the term loan would have been permitted to have been reclassified um, on the issuance date uh, because the company could have met uh, the interest coverage and secured debt, debt tests uh, to reclassify the term loan as ratio debt and, uh, and secure it with leveraged liens. Um, ultimately, the term loan was upsized and the notes were downsized, so the reclassification wasn't an issue um, at the issuance. Um, nevertheless, the bonds still permit about a you know a billion and a half dollars of additional secured debt capacity. Uh, Envision also had a builder basket, but this one was based on EBITDA less one and a half times interest expense. Uh, it also didn't require a leverage or interest coverage test, and it also allowed RPs based on market cap. Um, so, and also actually uh, one other thing, while common, uh, most of the dividend baskets had no uh, event of default or default blocker. Uh, for the ones that did, they were just subject to there being no event of default, not um, not a no default condition. Uh, the distinction is, is confusing, but it's important. Uh, let's say you have an issuer who fails to make an interest payment. Um, it has a 30-day grace period before an event of default is triggered, but the act of failing to pay the interest uh, constitutes a default. So when you have a basket that is just subject to no event of default, um, the, bar, the issuer will essentially be allowed to pay dividends despite it having missed uh, an interest payment. So, again, it's, it's not atypical. It's, it's just something I don't think a lot of people give much thought to. Um, we'll see if that ever, if that ever happens uh, with companies still yeah. paying themselves. Um, but so, so to go on the, uh, you know, part of the, the, the builder basket here, you said both of them actually rely to some extent on EBITDA, Refinitiv. Um, in part um, net income, and then also a percentage of EBITDA, and then Envision, uh, their ba basket is based uh, entirely on, on EBITDA um, and not uh, net income. So why, you know, why is that? Uh, why do comp some companies prefer some issuers have EBITDA rather than um, net income? Well, it, it's not it's not for most companies. It's generally you'll see builder baskets that are uh, based on EBITDA less interest expense, but those are only for telecom companies. Thanks. Yeah, and presumably it's because telecom companies don't generate cash and have net negative net income. Yeah, exactly. But um, but Envision is a medical company, so it's 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 not uh, particularly appropriate here. I get. It. Yeah, but uh, you know, to be honest with you, from a security holder perspective, uh, it might not be appropriate for telecom companies either. Um, you know, when companies with the large asset base, they typically generate little net income. So I, I, I see that um, you know, because of high depreciation, they don't have much net income. Um, but for debt holders, you know, those same companies will often spend high amounts of capex to replace their assets. So the ability to pay dividends is not really aligned with companies' ability to generate cash. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. But, um, but in any event, a related issue with kind of the, the debt and the RP covenants is that uh, they all kind of they all include baskets that are accessible, or they, they include certain baskets that are accessible if. Uh, the issuers can meet certain leverage tests, and uh, all baskets include 
uh, grower baskets, which are based on the greater of a fixed amount and a percentage of EBITDA. Um, as is to be expected, um, the definitions of EBITDA in both deals include uncapped cost savings um, that can be added back, uh, you know, for up for up to 24 months uh, for actions that have either been taken or are expected to be taken. Um, what's and again, this this also is is not something new, but when you have EBITDA addbacks for actions that have either been taken or expected to be taken, you're allowing issuers to increase their EBITDA calculations for actions that not only are not even required to materialize, but they're not even required to actually happen. It just, you know, if, if on day one we say, okay, we can do X, Y, and Z to, to um, you know, to achieve some cost savings, you know, we can expect that action to happen so we can add back to our EBITDA even if that action never occurs. Um, in Refinitiv, over 25% of their pro forma EBITDA is from future cost savings. Um, they, they had, um, of the two two and a half billion of their EBITDA, 650 million was of cost savings. Um, and in Envision, while not as big, the $1 billion pro forma EBITDA included 75 million of cost savings. Uh, the, the point, obviously, that I'm trying to make is that these companies have uh, not only large baskets from the get-go to incur debt and pay dividends, but most of these baskets can be artificially increased uh, without limit for actions that never actually have to even begin to occur. Um, again, the EBITDA formulation is not new, but I am always surprised that uh, there doesn't seem to be much pushback from creditors. And, and you had alluded to some other issues that people don't pay as much attention to? Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief with these. Um, I find them interesting. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, how how much other people will, just given how much focus has been paid on dividends and debt. But um, under Refinitiv, a change of control, uh, an action that would constitute a change of control, is only would only trigger a change of control if the pro forma leverage of if the if the company couldn't meet a, a pro forma four times total leverage test. Um, every now and then, in particular in European deals, you'll see a permitted change of control concept, which does not classify an acquisition by another PE company as a change of control if the acquirer you know, has a certain amount of assets under management and depending on the size of the equity contribution. Here, regardless of, of who buys the company, as long as the four times test can be met, the change of control wouldn't be triggered. Um, something that I, I think is more interesting, though, very technical, is that um, under the, both of the OMs, a change of control will only be triggered if uh, you know a person or a group other than the permitted holders acquires more than 50% of the voting stock of the issuer. It's interesting because both of these companies are, are private. So hypothetically, if Blackstone or KKR were to sell 50% of the companies to a third party, a change of control wouldn't be triggered um, given that you know the trigger is over 50%. But nobody would actually own a majority of the issuer anymore. So note holders could hypothetically find themselves owning the debt of an entirely different company um, you know given that the management given that the, the entity with decision making ab abilities doesn't exist anymore um, and yet they ha would have no right to put their notes uh, lastly I, I think the general guarantor packages were somewhat lacking um, and the OMs provided a, a fairly decent amount of flexibility for the company's non-guarantors um, in Refinitiv, the non-guarantors accounted for 60% of revenues, 58% uh, of EBITDA, and 61% of total assets. In Envision, the non-guarantors uh, accounted for 77% of revenue and 35% of total assets. 
um, you know, given the, the, the percentage of revenues attributable to the company's non-guarantors, um, as a note holder, you know, you'd probably like to get a sense as to how much of the company's EBITDA is attributable, is it attributable to entities that uh, are providing guarantees and are not. However, neither of the OMs required that the companies deliver consolidating financials, so note holders wouldn't kind of get a broken out, uh, you know, uh, financial performance. They wouldn't get a broken out uh, statement kind of showing which entities are attributable to the, to the EBITDA. Um, in addition, uh, the non-guarantor restricted subs can incur debt under, you know, pretty much most debt baskets. Um, and because the liens only, only the, because the liens covenants only restrict the issuers and the guarantors, any debt incurred by non-guarantors, which would be structurally senior, can be secured by their assets. So you know, and I, uh, the other ways that companies, you know, can, I guess, take value or layer, you know, if you, if you will, um, is not only non-guarantors, but also you know we hear a lot about unrestricted uh, subsidiaries too. Um, you know, often. Companies have been have transferred assets to unrestricted subsidiaries and raised debt there as well. Is that an issue um, that that has come up in, or is that something that's allowed in uh, these two deals? Yeah. So, um, so actually, this is this is kind of a a, a good point. So, um, you know, in J Crew, which is kind of which is really the example of of transverse unrestricted subs, those debt documents had what we call you know a proceeds basket that kind of allows non-guarantors to transfer assets to uh, unrestricted subs based on the proceeds of, of investments into those non-guarantors that had been permitted. Um, proceeds baskets are not in either of the OMs in Refinitiv and Envision, but uh, as PetSmart recently showed, you don't really need a, a proceeds basket to kind of shift all this value to unrestricted subs. Um, you know, the, the documents, both have uh, fairly large investment baskets, RP baskets, um, and that's kind of what PetSmart relied on. It, it you know, it's it just the size of the general permitted baskets uh, allowed them to transfer the equity to uh, unrestricted subs and to dividend the equity of Chewy to spot to this to their sponsors. So yeah, I mean that is a risk here. Granted, um, you know these companies are kind of newly acquired. I, I don't think that's an issue now. But certainly, uh, the framework is in place in these OMs for something like PetSmart to happen down the road, were the financials to um, to significantly deteriorate. So you know, I'm not sure if this is a, a trend. Um, you know, in terms of the the, the loosening covenants. You know, certainly um, these. You know, you mentioned these are in some ways you could call them egregious. Um, you know, is this similar to a lot of other deals that you're seeing right now? Um, are these a lot looser? Are you seeing other tighter covenants out there? Or are, people, are deals going down this road? Well, you know, I'd say the majority of deals, um, especially large sponsor financing, might, large sponsor financings might have, you know, one, two, or three aggressive terms that, uh, that were present in Refinitiv or Envision. Um, but I, I don't think that they would have, you know, the whole, essentially a party of, of, of loose terms. So, um, you know, I'd still say Refinitiv and, or Envision are particularly aggressive, even in this kind of aggressive environment. Um, one deal we recently reviewed was um, Carlisle's acquisition of uh, Axo Noble Specialty Chemicals. Uh, it's a specialty chemical company that they purchased for 10 billion euro. Um, you know, so Carlisle obviously is a, is a big sponsor. This was a big sponsored financing. But I mean, in that deal, you know, for instance, um, the issuer was not allowed to reclassify uh, credit agreement debt that was outstanding on the issue date. 
uh, in Envision and in Refinitiv, uh, issuers could have done that. Um, in order to access the builder basket um, in Axo Noble, uh, the issuer had to meet a two times fixed coverage charge uh, test. Obviously, uh, that was not present in Refinitiv or Envision. Uh, of course, the, I mean, the deal did have a market cap based RP basket. It had a specified change of control concept where, uh, you know, an action that would constitute a change of control would not, if there was a three and a half times total leverage test that was met pro forma for the transaction. And the EBITDA addbacks uh, included, uh, you know, uncapped addbacks with a 24 month look forward period. So, yeah, I mean, so that's still aggressive. It's just not as aggressive as, uh, as Refinitiv and Envision. Uh, the last thing I just wanted to mention quickly is I, I, I just reviewed an interesting deal for HC2 Holdings. It is a company that is owned by Phil Falcone of uh, a Harbinger Capital. It's essentially a holding company that has eight different uh, operating subsidiaries. Um, these were firstly notes, and the terms have been tightened uh, two times now. Um, now, while, of course, your question is, is is the trend getting to be more restrictive, and this is a more restrictive deal, uh, the HC2 Holdings is a little, it's kind of a, um, an anomaly, just given that uh, the OM discloses that the guarantors accounted for 0% of revenue and 1% of total assets. So, yeah, in that deal, sure, deals uh, terms were tightened, but... Um, there was essentially, you know, no no guarantors and uh, and no collateral, despite the first lien nomenclature. So, um, I, you know, I don't think that is reflective of of kind of the overall term. So, you know, I, I think it's still kind of steady going. Um, you know, loose covenants are just not surprising anymore. Um, where we go from here, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Although I will be saying, although I will say that, you know, for the last three or four years, um, there has been talk about convergence of of covenants between bonds and bank debt. And that doesn't seem to be abating uh, anytime soon. Uh, so we'll see what uh, issuers come up with next. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, appreciate it. Back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 